This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Dorcia, New York. If you don't already know, you probably can't get in. Dorcia is nice. Pod Cemetery is also made possible by the generous support of listeners like you over at patreon.com/podcemetery. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. And it's Look What Society Can Do to a Man Week on Pod Cemetery with 2000's American Psycho and 2015's Green Room. Getting us started right away with our classic film, 2000's American Psycho. Based on the novel by Brett Easton Ellis and written by Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner, directed by Mary Heron, it stars Christian Bale, Justin Theroux, Chloe Sevigny, Willem Dafoe, Reese Witherspoon, Josh Lucas, and Jared Leto. Kelsey, what is American Psycho about? An 80s white male yuppie working yuppie. on Wall Street goes insane. <laughs> Because of his lifestyle. In one way or another, he goes insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And hates women and wants to kill women. Yeah. Heron, the director, called this a portrait of the late 80s. A time where the term yuppie was actually coined. Which means young urban professional or young upwardly mobile professional. Mm. Uh, basically a term that refers to the concept of, during the 80s, usually white 20-somethings moving to or living in cities to get incredibly high-paying jobs. Yes. And living, like, you know, flashy, expensive lifestyles. Yes. Yeah. The movie is available via HBO Max and DirecTV. You can rent it for $4 or buy it for 10 to 13 But for some reason, it's only $7 on Amazon. Kelsey, should people watch American Psycho? Yes. Now, why do you think? Without giving away too much. It's very good. Yeah. It's very, very good. It's very creepy. It's very uncomfortable. It's very good. Now, we watched the version on HBO Max. Uh, it's called the Extended Edition. I don't know why. Well, it's extended by like a minute. <laughs> there is, like we, we own on DVD and Blu-ray, I think, both the unrated version I think it's the same thing. I would have thought it would have had the deleted scenes in it. Because no, I've yeah, seen the deleted scenes. Right, but... But it didn't. It's basically everything that was taken out to make it R instead of NC-17. He refers to her asshole. In the R version, he says her ass. Like, mm. that's what we're talking about. Like, super minor differences. <laughs> it's actually not that big of a deal <laughs> uh, watching the unrated version. But I guess that's the one that Heron originally intended to release and then was forced to scale back ever so slightly to get it in R. And so now we get to see that original version. I think that the extended edition on HBO Max is the same thing. Uh, based on what we saw, it seems like it. 
do you think this would have been better with Leonardo DiCaprio instead? I'm an enormous Leonardo DiCaprio fan. Uh Uh-huh. Enormous. And do I think he can play a villain? Absolutely. We've all seen Django Unchained. I think he does an outstanding villain. Could he have been successful here? Yes. Am I glad he didn't do it? Yes. Why are you glad he didn't do it? I think Christian Bale's interpretation is just so spot on. Not to say that Leo couldn't have done it. I I do. He's an outstanding actor. But Christian Bale just gets that smarminess. Yeah. uh Just absolutely perfectly. And, And he's able to create a compelling, not sympathetic, but a compelling, like, he really has gone insane right. character. I feel like this would have been more like the Wolf of Wall Street, but, you know, with murders. Right. If it was, like, that's the sort of vibe I feel like Leo would have given off. Like, super confident, maybe a little bit loud, but, like, not creepy? I don't know. Has Leo done anything that sort of creepy? Well, that's what I think of Django Unchained. Is that no? But that's yeah, but that's not that. Yeah, that's not the same kind of creepy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I'm saying I'm glad he didn't right. do it. Uh, and at the time, Oliver Stone was brought on to either direct or produce. I get conflicting reports on this. Um, Cameron Diaz was going to be in it. Um, I can see that she was outstanding in uh, Vanilla Sky. Yeah. Uh, I think this in this version, Chloe Savigny was going to be in it as well. And then when Heron got the movie back, she kept her because she liked her. Chloe Savigny? Yeah, but got rid of basically all the rest of the cast. I've heard some reports that Leto was in that cast too, uh, and she kept him too, but... He plays such a small role. He, it's an important role, though. <laughs> He's in like three scenes in the entire movie, mm-hmm. uh, but it's a pretty important role. So what basically what happened is Mary Heron had it. Actually, originally, David Cronenberg was going to direct and Brad Pitt was going to play the part. Oh, no. Okay, I can see Brad Pitt doing it, but Cronenberg? No, no, no. It would have been a completely different movie, yeah. I feel. And I don't just mean, oh, they would have made it all body horror. But no. like we've seen him do other things other than body yes. horror. But anyway, Lionsgate was like... We might be able to get Leonardo DiCaprio, so fuck your choice to Mary Heron. <laughs> and she was like, well, then bye. I'm out of here. And, and either she quit or they fired her. Again, conflicting responses. And we would have gotten the Oliver Stone, Leonardo DiCaprio version if not for the beach. He left to go make the beach. Oh, thank goodness. I mean... I mean, it's a low point in right. Leo's career, but it doesn't matter. Leo's career is doing just fine. <laughs> and so they had to go back to, to Mary Heron and be like, um, you want to still make the movie? <laughs> and she's like, yes, fine. And so she ended up making it. And, and we talked when, uh, when we watched this movie about Hatchet for the Honeymoon, about how similar they are, uh, how this movie obviously seems like it takes at least some sort of inspiration from Hatchet for the Honeymoon. There are some reports that she had the cast watch the movie uh, prior to making this one, American Psycho. We have a a rich, attractive, confident serial killer who is narrating his thoughts throughout the process and killing in order to discover 
more about himself. Yes. And as far as I know, I've never read the book myself. Uh huh. I have had portions read to me. It's basically this, but way more graphic. Like, That's what they I describe thought. everything. Right. But I, and I know that. And I, my friend was trying to freak me out by showing like parts of that. But like, I assume that the monologues are very similar. I yeah. assume that the way he thinks is very similar. Well, he did a pass on the script for the movie. Brady okay. Scandalous. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Just uncredited. Which more leads me to believe that he must have seen the movie, Hatchet for the Honeymoon, before he read. I mean, wrote. Oh, before he wrote the book? Uh-huh. Probably. Mm-hmm. I can only guess. All right. Well, yes, you should watch the movie. It's very exciting to talk about. I doubt we're going to get, like, super deep into it. So don't expect, like, I mean, I feel like it, we could write a novel about all we the would, different conversations you can say about this movie. We would be here <laughs> all day if we were to really talk about this movie because there's so much going on. We're just going to hit on the highlights, which yeah. is, in fact, a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of highlights. It's another reason to watch the movie. Right. Uh, but we can't possibly go through this step by step. It will take forever. I will say, I was in high school when this movie came out, and I remember seeing it. This was what year? 2000. I graduated in 01. I was in. You were in middle school because we were not in. Grade. We were not in high school together. Seventh or eighth grade. Uh, your I first year, one. your freshman year, I had already graduated. I remember kind of not liking the movie the first time I saw it. Really? Yes. This is also the era where. I mean, I would watch a lot of movies with my family, and I think around this time I started realizing more and more about like, I don't have my family's tastes in things, right? And they, but they would influence sort of my opinion on a lot of things. And we would watch, I told you this story, we would watch Fight Club. And then I was watching it with my dad and my brother, and they just fucking checked out. They're like, this movie sucks. They just got up and started working on stuff or cleaning the house or working on the cars outside or something like that. You know, like that's, I was like, oh, I guess I'll watch it. And then I finished the movie and I'm like, you guys should not have left. (laughs) (laughs) But this, it feels like I had a similar sort of situation where I watched this one in high school and I was like, man, that was weird or whatever. You know, I was just sort of developing my own personal interests, I think. And it was a teacher a an interestingly a conservative teacher like very very conservative like maybe he missed the point no no <laughs> he very much got the point he's the one that explained the sort of irony to me of everything and i was like oh and then i went back and watched it again and yeah like i'm saying i was just surface level watching you know you're like why are these guys obsessed with their fucking business cards and he's like that's one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in a film is what he, the way he described it to me. I'm like, it's supposed to be funny. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. And he said, yeah. I'm like, okay. okay. Like, it just didn't occur to me that this horror movie, which was predominantly like po-faced was supposed to also be funny. And I was like, it just got crazy and it stopped making sense towards the end. I think it was my <laughs> initial, because I didn't think about it very much. I just sort of just let it go. I was watching it with my family, you know, and then, yeah. It, yeah, this would be a weird movie to watch with your family. There came a time when I started thinking about, like, the type of movies that I shouldn't be watching with my family. And then I'd have to go out and watch on my own if I ever wanted to enjoy it. Like, that's how I watched uh, Rocky Horror. 
Uh, I'll tell you the exact circumstances of how I watched Rocky Horror when we watch Rocky Horror. <laughs> anyway, you can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2000's American Psycho. Patrick Bateman has a busy day. 12.30 power lunch. Another martini, Paul. 3.45 board meeting. What do you think? Oh, very nice. 7 o'clock friendly takeover. Patrick, you're so sweet. 9.15, make a killing. So, what do you do? I'm into, uh, well, murders and executions mostly. American Psycho, rated R. All right, Kelsey, get us started. How do you want to talk about American Psycho? I'm just going to pick up on hints of my favorite things. Okay. Okay, so I've never been part of this kind of high society before, but as far as I know, like in the 80s, I mean, hell, it's in a, it's in a Billy Joel song. There was this place called like Elaine's. It was like this elusive restaurant. You it was impossible. There's always a place like that to get into. I mean, you know, Sex and the City. But the the thing about Sex and the City is that they get into every single one. There's a new restaurant opening up every single week, and they get into every single opening. You uh-huh. know, but here's this place called Dorcia, and poor Patrick Bateman cannot get into Dorcia. No one really can. Except for Paul Allen. How do you think Paul Allen gets in? He probably also knows somebody. It's all about who you know. It's not It's not a meritocracy, folks. But also, Paul Allen has a nicer place than he does. Yep. But That's Paul Allen he, does the same thing he does, right? They have the same position. That's part of the humor is... They all have the same position. They're all vice presidents in, in, of, in mergers and acquisitions. Mergers and acquisitions. And, and nobody can exactly say what anybody else does all day. Well, we know for a fact that Patrick Bateman does nothing all day. At least when we see him, yeah. We are told at one point that his father owns the company. Yeah. So the idea is that he doesn't have to do anything. Right. But I do wonder if any of his friends do anything. Because Patrick Bateman, I think the point of Patrick Bateman is that he does everything he thinks he's supposed to do. Yeah. But we have no idea what other people do in their personal time. We know that Patrick... See, most people put their masks on when they're outside, when they're around other people. And when they're home, they feel free to be themselves. Uh Uh-huh. Patrick doesn't know how to be himself. He admits this. Right. There is no Patrick Bateman. Yeah. He, he is just the mask he wears. Mm-hmm. But the question is, do the other people feel the same way? No, I think, I mean, I think probably the best example is Lewis. Who. Is, is secretly gay. Is secretly gay. Yeah. And to the point where. He has a secret private life that is also straight. So, like, you know, he's getting married to the woman that Patrick Bateman is sleeping with. Um, so he's getting cucked in that way. But then so is Patrick Bateman by Justin Thoreau. Who, interestingly, okay, as much as he hates Paul Allen, because Paul Allen has all these things that he wants. Mm-hmm. 
he wants to be Justin Thoreau because he thinks Justin Thoreau is the most interesting person yeah. he knows. Justin Thoreau seems to be the only character in all of his friends who does have something going on. It doesn't stop him from criticizing him in in the name of performative liberalism. Exactly. But at the same time, he's the only one who actually seems to think or feel anything. Right. Which is why Patrick Bateman has such an, like... Thinks he's so interesting. Uh-huh. He actually has opinions, and they seem like they might actually be his, but he's still vapid. You know what I mean? I think Justin Thoreau is probably the most emotionally intelligent of his friends, <laughs> and that's and it's not very much. Yeah, yeah that's not saying much. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Lewis, he's cheating on his wife. Ostensibly. With another woman. Because everyone has affairs. Exactly. That's the point. Exactly. There's like so many layers of bullshit. He's in public marrying this woman, Courtney. And then in private, he's walking around the streets at night, casually bumping into people he might know with a completely different woman. But in private, private. He's actually gay and lusts for Patrick. So that proves to us that Patrick is the only person, probably, who has no real self. Yeah. And I think I think you can you can you can say that this is not like, oh, well, you know, he's very he doesn't like anti-Semitic remarks. He doesn't like homophobic remarks. Like, he has this idea of what we should do to fix the world, and it's all, like, liberal policies. But he and, doesn't believe it. But he doesn't it. believe in any of them. When Lewis grabs his hand and, like, kisses it and stuff, thinking that Patrick is coming on to him, he washes off his gloves. Yes. It disturbs him so much. Like, he is very much, that. Like, this is all a performance. They do a whole lot of coke throughout the film. Yes, the best scene being in the bathroom with Bryce, Justin Thoreau, is so good. Am I keeping it down? I'm trying to do drugs over here. Whatever it is he says. Fuck you! (laughs) Fuck you! (laughs) Everyone's waiting in line for the bathroom, but nobody's actually using the bathroom. (laughs) Yes. But again, he only does it because everyone else does it. Yeah. It doesn't bother him that it's been cut so much. Right. He doesn't care about anything. And that's very, that's kind of the whole point of the film. Uh Like, everything, the only thing that does matter to him is music. Music and clothes. He could have opinions on music. Yes. But it it seems like he's just sort of regurgitating essays that have already been written. Oh, you don't think these are actually his opinions? I think it's possible. I think they're too well rehearsed. So even if he did form these on his own, it's specifically so he can have something to talk about with people. Like they're, they're very scripted and rehearsed. Huh. It's also interesting that when he's talking about Whitney Houston, he says, since there's no such thing as empathy or something like that. It's impossible in this world we live in to empathize with others. So it's half a commentary on what the world does to society and half a commentary on himself and he how he's admitting that he does not feel empathy. But that's interesting. I I know that you think that he seems super rehearsed when he talks about it. Oh, yeah. But I haven't read the book, but what I assume is that this is taken straight out of the book. 
and that you're hearing his inner know. monologue and like he's like because what I've been told is there are whole chapters dedicated to nothing but his opinions on music. Uh-huh. So what I think might be happening is they're just taking like lines straight out of the book and having him say them out loud. And it is the only thing we see him do in private that's not like centered around making himself look good. And the way that he says it, I know that you think that he seems super rehearsed, but honestly, what that might mean to me is that he's constantly thinking about it. Is that he's constantly thinking about it, and he has these really, like, deep opinions, and he wants to express them with people, but no one actually wants to listen to them. So what does that mean in your mind that music is the one thing he cares about? Well, first of all, I want to point out that this this movie has a killer soundtrack. Killer 80s soundtrack. It is so good, and I'm going to list every song as we go through. Did you notice that Whitney Houston is not in the movie? I did. Is it because she didn't want to be in it? She absolutely did not want to be associated with this movie. Of course she wouldn't want to be in this movie. Of course she wouldn't. Why would she? Uh Uh-huh. So... That song, The Greatest Love of All, is she talking about her herself? I've never actually listened to the lyrics, I don't think. He says it's written about self-preservation, dignity. Its universal message crosses all boundaries and instills one with the hope that it's not too late to better ourselves. Since, Elizabeth, it's impossible in this world we live in to empathize with others, we can always empathize with ourselves. It is an important message, crucial really, and it's beautifully stated on the album. Like him encouraging the idea that we might encourage yuppies. Oh, you can't empathize with others? Well, then you should be self-centered. Is nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's a love for herself. Mm-hmm. The greatest love of all is the one that she has for herself. Like it's important for certain people to have a love for themselves. You know who doesn't need a love for themselves? Fucking yuppies. <laughs> These people. Well, I guess you could argue that it's a lack of love for oneself that makes them behave in this way, but still. I don't think he loves himself. I don't think he loves anyone. Exactly. But I think he can care about people. For some reason, he does care about Chloe Sabine. He cares about his secretary, yeah. Yeah, I don't think he's completely devoid of feeling. And I think a lot of the movie is him evolving in... Both directions. Ha! What? The end, he says, this confession has meant nothing. The confession has meant nothing. The reason I brought up the soundtrack, uh-huh. first song that we hear in the bar or in the club where they're trying to do uh, coke, and he says, cool, with the anti-Semitic remarks. Yeah. Okay, that's the other thing, and it's going to be really hard. First of all, the writing is outstanding. Yes. It is, like... Brett Easton Ellis is a great writer. I don't know what you want. He's well, He does crazy shit, but he's a great writer. Plus, we have, like, this woman director and other woman co-writer. Yes, thank God. Credit. I love seeing this through a feminist viewpoint, yeah. <laughs> which is why this movie is so good and why I, I don't understand how women walk away from this thinking this is misogynistic. Well, they probably view it in the same way that I viewed it the first time I watched it, which is why I brought that up, by the way. I, I, I meant to I meant it as, if you saw it the first time and didn't like it, consider giving it a rewatch. I love that my favorite movie of all time is Fight Club, and I also absolutely love this movie. And, uh-huh. like, both movies, like I'm told, are supposed to be for the men. And I'm like, excuse me. They're, I think you've missed a whole hell of they a lot. 100% anti misogyny. Yes. Anti masculine, you know, bullshit. Like, 
just because it has it in the movie, like just because people like Tyler Durden doesn't mean those people understood the movie. They very clearly did not. If they walked away feeling, man, I want to be Tyler Durden. Oh, you didn't get the movie. (laughs) Same thing for this. Yes. But so the song that's playing is I used to think that the day would never come da 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 in the morning sun the morning sun is a drug that brings me near to the child I lost replaced by the fish Ooh, the 80s music is perfect in this film well it's also a little it's not the deepest best 80s like I honestly think of all the movies we've covered so far, Donnie Darko has the best 80s soundtrack. And this doesn't even come close to touching it. The song is True Faith by New Order. And I think that's one of the closest that this soundtrack gets to being an actual representation of the sort of 80s movies that I like, or 80s songs that I like. New Order has two other songs that are better than that one, though. Christian Bale has this amazing first monologue where he explains his whole daily routine. Oh, we should probably also say that even in this first early scenes, already nobody can properly identify Paul Allen. No one can properly identify Patrick Bateman. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. I'm just going to say this now because I wrote it down at the very end. It is very, very clear Patrick Bateman is Patrick Bateman. Oh, yeah. I, th- I don't think that at any point anyone who thinks he's somebody else is correct. Right. Now, if you want to argue or whether or not he actually killed anybody, that's another story entirely. I don't think he killed anybody. I don't think he did either. But I think there are arguments to be made there and that there are compelling ones. But I don't think there's a compelling argument to be made that he's not actually Patrick Bateman. Right. No. He, he is Patrick Bateman. His fiance knows it. His his the girl he's sleeping with knows it. All his closest friends know it. The only people who don't know that he's Patrick Bateman are people he's not actually friends with. Right. His lawyer, Paul Allen. You know these people get him confused. The girl who works for him knows his right. real name. Right. Like that's what I wrote down. There's a police detective. Right. His secretary. His closest friends. Like yeah, no, it's he's very obviously actually. Whenever Patrick anybody Bateman. confuses him. It's someone he doesn't very often associate with. And the point of that is many layers here. Firstly, that they're all the same, so they're impossible to tell apart. They're interchangeable. Secondly, none of them care about who the other people are. Right. Thirdly, that there are personas and there's rumors. Uh, Whenever anybody talks about Patrick Bateman, they always say, what a dork, what a nerd, uh right? Because there is obviously a rumor someone said it once, and that's what all that's all anybody knows about him, and that's what everyone that. says that. Or whoever they think actually is Patrick Bateman is a big dork. Right. So it's more just a look at the fact that these people are all the same and you can't tell them apart than it is, who is he? Does he not know who he is? Right, no, yeah, that's no. not part of his psychosis. He's crazy yeah. enough, people. <laughs> So anyway, you say he has this great monologue, opening monologue. Incredible opening monologue. We cannot put every single monologue that he gives because it would take up, it would, we just play the whole movie for you Uh at that point. But there's a great monologue about his whole routine. And again, it just kind of drives home the fact that 
this person is not real. He does whatever society tells him to, even in the privacy of his own home when no one is watching. This is what I imagine Gwyneth Paltrow's life is like. Uh, because <laughs> With all the different it, scrubs. Like, and, exactly. Yeah. Like, I imagine, because, I mean, she, she probably isn't a real person. She's just <laughs> what she thinks society should be, which is exactly what he's doing here. In his words... There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. And the point of this, guys, is that this is how Brett Easton Ellis really did feel. He grew up very rich in L.A. All of his books are about rich, 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 rich people, rich white people. And the fact that they have these vapid experiences, they don't have any real emotions. And how he wanted to fit in, and that is a big key part of this. He he says it several times, I want to fit in. Uh-huh. I see why you just don't quit. Because I want to fit in. That is how Brett Easton Ellis felt. That's what he says. That's why he writes these books. Because it's like, the the society that I grew up in wants us to be this. Right. This is the epitome of what humanity is. And it's shallow and it's a void. If you want to know his his thoughts on this culture... Without the abstraction of a horror movie and psychopathy, uh, watch Less Than Zero. Watch it or read it? You can read it, but I mean, watch it. It's also devastating knowing that this could, like, really have happened to Robert Downey Jr. if he hadn't sort of cleaned up his life. Mm -hmm. Man, that's a rough movie to watch. And there's no psycho killer. There's no crazy violence or anything. It's just... Ugh, it's an indictment of this entire culture. How empty their lives were. Yeah. And how he felt like, this is what I have to be to fit in. And that, and his way of dealing with that is writing. Thank uh, God it was not to go around killing a bunch of people. Like the, the third one is Rules of Attraction, which is not as good, I don't think. The movie's not good. I'm <laughs> sure the book is great. Uh, and the movie's actually not that bad. But anyway... I'm a Brett Easton Ellis fan. Tell. <laughs> to an extent, at least. Uh, but anyway, so I think that that's what's really key here, is that if society had its druthers, this is what everyone would be, and that's terrifying. And that's, at its core, right. like what is most frightening about this film. This is what society turns you into, a shell of a human performing opinions and performing interests who has zero compassion or empathy for those around us, those on the street, anything. Like, this is that sort of young, rich, capitalistic, you know, young Republican type that dominated the 80s. It's also why the movie ends with Ronald Reagan, despite the fact that the book takes place when, when Reagan's not in office. They shifted it like a year or two, I think. Yeah, because he left office in 88. So this movie takes place in 87. I think the books takes place in 89. They moved it almost specifically so they could get 
Reagan in office, who is representative of just a certain type of outlook on how our economy should work, how our society should be structured, all these sorts of things that obviously both Heron and Ellis have a bleak outlook on. Yes. Mm-hmm. Everything that is motivation in his life is jealousy. That's the only time he ever has any kind of real, like, strong emotion. Right. Is when he wants something that someone else has. His goal is to perform the best. Mm -hmm. And if he somehow doesn't get the best, then... He, that's the only thing he really feels. Mm-hmm. Like he gets upset when he's talking about his the girl that he's sleeping with. He's like, why is she engaged to Lewis? Like right, because that almost reflects poorly on him. Exactly. Yeah. But then he gets really jealous of Lewis's... Business card. Business oh, card. the business card scene. Are we talking about the business card scene? We can talk about it. Just briefly. I mean, I think it's pretty iconic in terms of this movie. This is how... My teacher sort of explained the humor of of the movie to me was through this scene. Yeah, they're just comparing all these virtually identical business cards. And yes, you can see there are differences. Although I think when they say raised lettering, there is no raised lettering. I was looking, I was like, there's no raised lettering. You can you, you can just barely tell it. She uh, didn't she didn't do a great cinematography job here. Uh-huh. I feel like, like she could have that. I feel like she could have done things to make you really see the things they're talking about with the thing with the cards or right. whatever. But I mean they're almost comparing their penis sizes. Right. They're they're showing off their cars to each other. They're showing off like it that's all it is is basically just showing off. Mine can be a more obscure color of white than yours. My font it has a serif and this line is straight and like, you know, like you're bragging about these sorts of things is absolute inanity, not insanity, inanity. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it so funny how fucking important it is to Patrick to have the best business card and how devastated he is when Paul Allen's is really nice and when Lewis's is nice later on in the movie. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> even that nitwit or whatever it is he calls Lewis. More disturbing than her drug use, though, is the fact that she's engaged to Lewis Carruthers, the biggest doofus in the business. Christian Bale's acting here. He's fantastic. I don't know if he's ever been better. I. He just tapped into this smarmy. There's a humor here for sure. Angry, yet insecure i don't know how he did it but it's so perfect that smile he does it's just sort of like it just broad smile but he doesn't really show teeth that often and he just sort of nods like he's paying attention to you but he's really not he's thinking more about what's happening on his face right now so good it's used as a meme now (laughs) (laughs) and for the most part he keeps it up the entire movie until the very end when it slips and you can hear his real accent. Oh my god, he does such a great American accent. It's so sad when you actually hear it. And it's because he's doing such a good job of being so vulnerable yeah. for like five seconds in the and, film. And that's how... But in that vulnerability, you hear his accent. And you're like, no! <laughs> Apparently they kept doing that scene over and over again. So he would like, so he would break down more and more and more until they got it. <laughs> Last week, I... Uh... I killed another girl with a chainsaw. 
It's very good. Uh-huh. The acting is phenomenal. Uh-huh. But he just... I, I'm not there yet in yeah, my no, notes, but there's that's a fine. word that you really hear the British accent Oh, on. yeah. Uh-huh. And I'm like, dude, I forgot you were British. <laughs> Said something. This movie can be very, very funny. He always he always says he's going to take people to Dorcia, and then he never actually does. He can never get a reservation. And he just kind of, when he's there, he just pretends like it doesn't matter that they're not at Dorcia. Like, they just do, he just doesn't talk about it, uh-huh. which I think is very interesting. I love his little one-liners. Lewis says something and then, like, keeps going with it, and he's just like, your compliment was sufficient, Lewis. <laughs> I... Christian Bale is so good. He's so funny in Uh this movie. Just, you know, that can't possibly be Ivanka Trump. No way she'd be here. Like, I just, ah. Right, at Texarkana, because, like, what's the Texarkana thing? Is it an insult to Paul Allen, who may or may not be Paul Allen? Uh, Is it an insult to Paul Allen to take him someplace so not hip, so empty when he does? Or is it his attempt at starting a new trend or hopping on a trend before it's big by sort of ironically going to a place that's like that? You just don't know. One of the few poignant moments in the film uh, is when he says some after he kills the homeless guy. Yeah. He says something terrible is happening inside of me and I don't know why. I have all the characteristics of a human being. Flesh, blood, skin, hair. But not a single clear, identifiable emotion, except for greed and disgust. Something horrible is happening inside of me, and I don't know why. My nightly bloodlust has overflowed into my days. I feel lethal, on the verge of frenzy. I think my mask of sanity is about to slip. And I've always thought that was a fascinating idea about serial killers. It's like, are they aware? Do they know what they're doing is insane? And yes, they do know. That's what ties it into Hatchet for the Honeymoon, where with every kill, he's unlocking new information about himself. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there's a lot of kills we don't see in this movie that happen in the book that he only admits to at the end, but we never actually see. But what's so interesting here is that he's not happy with what he is. Right. I don't know that he wants to be better, but I know that he thinks he should be better. Like, that's the problem. And that's that's what's the problem here is, uh-huh. like, he wants to be whatever he's supposed to be. And he's like, why am I doing this crazy shit? Uh-huh. I'm not supposed to do this crazy shit. Right. Like, I think it's more that. Like, I... Like, he's like, why am I this evil person? Why am I doing this crazy stuff? Is that what serial killers go through? I don't know. I think probably to some extent, some do. I think to another extent, a lot of people like that sort of look down on people that can't detach, that actually care about things. So it depends on who you're talking about. So you think that when he makes those questions, that proves that he cares? No. I think it's it's a question like I, I can see how somebody who is a psychopath and a sociopath, well, maybe a sociopath, could still not want to be doing what they're doing. Despite the fact that they can't like empathize with anybody or anything. It also explains why I think he's so interested in serial killers. He's constantly talking about serial killers. 
probably because he wants to understand himself. Mm-hmm. And what he thinks is funny, like at one point he uh, he quotes, I'm going to put heavy quotes around this, Ed Gein, when he talks about, I think there's two things I think about. There's the one side of me that wants to take her out for a nice meal and blah, blah, blah. And the other side of me that's wondering what her head looks like impaled on a spike. That's an Ed Kemper quote. Interesting. Yeah, not Ed Gein. But he is, I think that's just a mistake. I don't think that says anything about his character. Because they don't even know who Ed Gein is anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, that he's so obsessed with these serial killers, I think probably because he wants to know more about himself. So he decides to kill Paul Allen, because Paul Allen is just a total raging asshole. It's, he's the source of all of his anger, I think, at this point. Or at least he's who he identifies as the source. He has more money. He has a nicer apartment. He doesn't even know that yet. Right. But he flits around and talks about how he can get into Dorcia, no problem. He makes fun of Patrick Bateman because he doesn't know that he's speaking to Patrick Bateman. Uh So, like, Patrick just hates this guy. Uh So he decides he's going to kill him. And this is the famous Huey Lewis in the news scene. And this just... Mm, love this monologue. He gives it so perfectly, but they should because it's more than just their music or whatever it is. And he does such a great job. And he just loves Huey Lewis in the news. And this is all too, it's hip to be square and it's funny and it's fun. And fucking Jared Leto is like, you got a little chow running around here? No, Paul, I don't. And then he just <laughs> puts it into his head, the axe. It's the famous scene. It's the one everybody knows. And there's a reason for that. It's perfect. You like Huey Lewis on the news? They're okay. Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. He's been compared to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Hey, Albert Yes, Alan? Why are there copies of the style section on the play? Do you, do you have a dog? A little chow or something? <laughs> no, Alan. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. In 87, Huey released this. Four, their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics, but they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of friends, it's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! Ah! What does he yell at him as he's chopping him up with an axe? Good luck getting into Dorcia now. Try getting a reservation at Dorcia now, you fucking stupid bastard. You fucking bastard. Try getting a reservation at Dorcia now, you fucking stupid bastard! obviously cares about this stuff and i think yeah that sort of jealousy that sort of infantile rage is what drives him Mm -hmm. and then when he goes back to work he's calm he's like going sort of zen in his office and he's listening to lady in red (laughs) we didn't note that earlier 
after I think he kills somebody, he's listening to Walking on Sunshine as well. But no, Walking on Sunshine song. is when he's in the back of the limo with his fiance, <laughs> and they're having a conversation. And that's when he tells her, I want to fit in. <laughs> That's why he's listening to Walking Outside. Yeah. Because I love when he relaxes to Lady in Red because I love that song. <laughs> Lady in Red. <laughs> but when he kills Paul Allen, he leaves a message on his voicemail saying that he's going to London. Uh-huh. Just the idea that he could just talk into the tape recorder and nobody would notice because they're all so interchangeable. You just put on a little voice like this. Exactly. You know? <laughs> And I think the idea is that he actually did hear that message because he really did go to London. Paul Allen is alive, supposedly. Yes. And I think that's why it's like, is he actually Paul Allen is an important question. But the people who say Paul Allen is alive could just be making the same mistake that they are about Patrick Bateman. True. But at the end, the investigation is over because he's perfectly fine in London. So it's just like... Patrick Bateman, I think, heard that voicemail and then in uh-huh. his mind killed him. Yeah, no, yeah, I think I think that's probably the best conclusion is that he didn't actually kill the guy. Um, he didn't kill anyone, most likely, although he does have that interaction with Lewis in the street about where'd you get that day bag? Overnight bag. Yeah, the overnight bag. That's it. I love that he Jean-Paul says Gautier. it. <laughs> yeah, I love that he says it when he walks away. It's so great. <laughs> Because he does need to know. He needs to drop in that sort of status thing. Yes. Um, He likely did not kill Paul Allen at all. And he's just so wrapped up in his own imagination that he can't tell the difference between his what he's thinking and what he's actually doing. I think that's, you know, not being able to tell the difference between the mask and the person, I think, is pretty important. Uh, an important message for the movie. He says when in his monologue about hip to be square specifically, a song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics, <laughs> but they should because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. <laughs> it's also a personal statement about the band itself. Yes. Like, hey, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's, it's just so good. <laughs> It's a, it's a huge slap in the face to Huey Lewis. I don't care. I don't care. I <laughs> he, did a, he did a version of, of uh, he did a scene with Weird Al Yankovic. I'll have to show you later. I, mean, I, love, I, love, I love Christian Bale. And again, I know what you mean when you say that it feels very rehearsed. But then again, if we, ima- if we think that this all happened in his imagination, it would be perfectly rehearsed. Right, because he's imagining that he does it perfectly. perfectly. Yeah, uh-huh. It you know, when you imagine exactly, you have a conversation and exactly it goes exactly the way. Exactly how he wants way. it to go. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So something does happen to Paul Allen, or at the very least, he does fly to London without telling his fiance. <laughs> right. Because there is an investigation with Willem Dafoe. Who, by the way, I think this is probably a pretty common knowledge thing about the movie. They filmed all of his scenes in three ways. One, where... He completely believes him. One where he thinks he did it and one where he's suspicious, right? And then they would just slice between those during the conversation just to sort of like fuck with Patrick. Interesting. With does he does he suspect me or not? Is he actually, you know how I say in uh, when we talk about Adam's family how 
at first you don't know if Gomez actually believes Fester. Uh-huh. And there's something creepy about that. Similar sort of thing going on here. Yeah, because I didn't know that. And before I knew that, I always thought Willem Dafoe kind of played it as he just doesn't know. Uh-huh. He's constantly questioning, and that would make sense why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's going to hurt some hookers here to Phil Collins. He's gonna he's not gonna hurt them to Phil Collins. He's gonna make them do sexual acts and stuff while Phil Collins is playing in the background. Yeah. What song is it? Uh, well, there are a couple of them, but he specifically talks about Susudio. Well, the first song that plays is great. I love the first song. And then the second song, yeah, is Susudio, and I hate that song. <laughs> but what's the first one? Because it's so good. Land of Confusion? No. Um, in Too Deep. In Too Deep. It's In Too Deep. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. It's so good. Yeah. Because I'm in too deep. No one of you, but I just can't take this. <laughs> it's really good. And then, yeah, and then when he does the sexual acts, it's like, Su-Su-Su-Dio. I hate and that song. And then that one in particular, that sort of monologue is intercut with the lines, Christy, get down on your knees so Sabrina can see your asshole. More about Phil Collins. Sabrina, don't just stare at it, eat it. But I also think Phil Collins works like, you know, it's it's very funny. And then that humor, we get to see him, you know, do the thing where he's recording. He's looking at himself in the mirror. He's flexing while they're having sex. And then they fall asleep. He gets up and he grabs like a hanger and something else. Now, I think in the book, they actually explain what he does with the hanger. They don't hear in this. He says, we're not done yet. And then cut to them leaving. And they're like scratched up. They're beat up. Their makeup's running. And he gives them money and they just want to get the fuck out of there. Which. Terrible. Mm hmm. You know, you, oh, you know, whatever. He's just having a threesome with, you know, some woman from the street and some woman he got on a phone service and, you know, whatever. But like the movie's like, no, 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 not whatever. He's fucked. And here's how we're going to show you that. And it's, it's affecting. It's like a sort of like stop on, oh, you having fun with his Phil Collins thing? Oh, he said the word asshole. You know, like, ha, 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 ha. Ooh, a sex scene. And then just, we're not through yet. Stop. This is horrific. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't even killed anybody by that point. Not, I mean, in the no, movie, but I mean. The, yeah, he's I mean, killed the homeless guy. In, in the scene. And Paul Allen. He yes. didn't kill either of these women. Mm-hmm. And he still is a terrible, terrible person. He's constantly saying the line, I've got to return some videotapes. Whenever he has to get out of a situation that he doesn't want to be in. It's not every time, but it's only then. Yes. I think I was returning some videotapes, or I've got to return some videotapes. I guess I was probably returning videotapes. It's funny, and it's such a silly little thing, but like anyone who grew up in the time of videotapes, like, that was a real thing you had to do. Yeah. Uh (laughs) You kids today don't know how lucky you got it. So it's kind of, it's it's just funny it's for older people, I think. You'd go to the video store, you'd walk around for an hour and a half and leave with nothing. <laughs> but so remember that he was listening to Huey Lewis in the news when he killed Paul Allen. So when the detective sees him the second time, I think when they have lunch, uh, or maybe he shows up at his office again, I'm not sure. But he, he's like, Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> Great stuff. I just... 
bought it on my way here. You heard it? Yes. And he goes, Huey's too black sounding for me. Like, Which is obviously not true. He obviously likes Huey Lewis. Loves Huey Lewis. Or this is his real thought. But I think if either one is going to be the real one, it's the one where he's enthusiastic about it. You know, where he talks more about it versus him just trying to make an excuse because there's a detective in his office. But like, what could possibly be going through his mind that it's important that he not like Huey Lewis? You know, like he's thinking, if I say yes, is he going to somehow tie me to the fact that Huey Lewis was playing when I killed Paul Allen? How would he even know that? (laughs) (laughs) But he's just, he's very paranoid at this point. uh We do get a hint that there is more going on with the women than we get to see. We, We don't have a lot of conversations with women where they actually have opinions, but... There is a scene where his the woman that he's having an affair with like tries to Courtney, talk to him, yeah. and it's clear that she wants to say more than she's saying. She also might be a little suicidal, too. Right. And he just says, you look great, or something like that. What's there to talk about? You look marvelous. There's nothing to say. Since I've read less than zero, I felt like she's kind of an extension of the of the female characters from that. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a lot going on there, but because this movie is about Patrick, we're not going to hear a whole hell of a lot about the female perspective here. The connection is between this and Rules of Attraction, right? The guy in Rules of Attraction is Patrick's brother, supposedly. Yeah. Well, they, they don't appear, make that connection in the film. But they do in the books. Like, they appear in I, each other's I, books. I haven't read either of those books. Okay, yeah. I've only read portions of American Psycho. And that was against my will. But less than zero, the women are all very similar to Courtney here. In yeah. that they all have a lot going on, but they just don't say a word. Because uh-huh. unlike the male characters who say what they're thinking, uh-huh. but what they're thinking is so vapid, it doesn't matter. The women have a lot more going on in the inside. Internal lives. And never say it out loud. Which is why it's so tragic that they're always just drugged up. Yes. and They're yeah, super uh, drugged up probably because the men in their lives keep them that way so that they don't talk about their experiences right. and thoughts. Uh-huh. They have a whole conversation about that at one of their lunches. Yeah. But yeah, he says something like, you look good, what is there to talk about? Yes. It's like, ugh, just ugh. Another great song that plays, uh, I want to know. What you're thinking, there's some things you can't hide. Oh, yeah, I just don't know this song. What's on Your Mind, Pure Energy by Paul Rob. Information Society is the name of the band. Pure Energy. You don't know that song? No, I don't. Great song. But that's playing at the club when fucking Justin Thoreau is like, prove that dyslexia isn't a, isn't a virus. Yeah. <laughs> All these ideas because of AIDS it's at the so time. so good. Yes. Uh-huh. And I thought the first thing I thought, I'm like, oh, my God, Justin Thoreau has gorgeous blue eyes. And they just stood out to me. Turns out he's wearing contacts. That's why they stood out to me is because he doesn't normally have those blue eyes. Just so we're clear, Justin Thoreau is gorgeous. He's a god of a man. (laughs) (laughs) Not to say that Christian Bale isn't gorgeous in this film, but that's just because of uh his body. Not to say that he isn't good looking. He's just not my type. Yeah. Justin Thoreau has a range. He has this sort of yuppiness. He has that other sort of yuppiness from, fuck, Lost Highway? No, um, Mulholland Drive. 
with the beard and the sunglasses and the, you know, film director type yuffiness. <laughs> yeah, anyway, obviously the leftovers. But so I think the implication is that he also kills a young model here that he takes home with him. Yeah, and then we just don't see. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. But unlike in Hatchet for the Honeymoon, you kill a model, you're going to get caught. You kill somebody famous, you're going right. to get caught, yeah, uh-huh. which is what happens in Hatchet for the Honeymoon, which is why we know it's not actually happening here. Right, but there's a lot. So there's a difference between what we don't see and what we don't see explicitly. I don't I don't know that there's necessarily like if that means anything, but you actually don't see a whole hell of a lot of violence in this movie. It's all implied. But that I think I think that's a result of the feminine view. Sure. Yeah. No, we sure. don't need and, to see it to know what's happening. Also decreasing it to make it an R rating. But like, think of how many things you see that are violent that you actually see on screen. He kills Paul Allen, not on screen. Yeah, he swings an axe, but Paul's not on the screen when he's swinging that axe. Mm. He does the thing with the hanger, not on screen. You only see the aftermath. Like, what does he do that's actually on screen? Practically nothing. There are a lot of deaths. Like later on, we'll get to, when he starts taking over Paul Allen's life to have these sort of escapades. We're gonna find a lot of bodies. We're gonna find the apartment is degenerating. It's getting worse and worse, and he's writing shit on the walls. There's garbage everywhere. Like there's blood, but which we never see any of that. Happen. All of that disappears later, which again tells you it's not real. It might. I think it does, but I don't think that's a hundred percent. I think you can make an argument the other way. Again, we said that. He cares about his secretary. We see that because he has the opportunity to kill her, but he does not take it. Yeah, he feels guilt in this scene, I think, which is interesting. He sees her as something that he is good. You know, not necessarily that he meshes very well with. But well, she doesn't like, fit into what society says she should be. And there's something precious about that, I think. Yeah, he likes that, but it also means that he can't actually be with her. Right. He has a nail gun up to the back of her head. When he gets a call from his fiance, and it's very obvious that they're still dating, and she sort of gets that hint, and she's like, Shh, do you want me to go? And he says, in response to her, he's very obviously talking about physically hurting her, but it's framed in the sort of melodramatic conversation that he might hurt her emotionally. She says, do you want me to go? He says, yeah, I don't think I control. I can control myself. I think if you stay, something bad will happen. I think I might hurt you. You don't want to get hurt, do you? And she says, no, no, I guess not. I don't want to get bruised. And so she leaves so as to avoid emotional trauma, makes the right decision. He tells her to go so as to avoid inflicting physical trauma. Mm-hmm. But also makes the right decision, mm-hmm. which is interesting. This could be real. If he didn't kill anyone else, this could be him getting up the nerve to actually kill somebody and then not being able to do it. Mm-hmm. Could be. That's what I think is happening. So, as we said, the detective is going to discover that Paul Allen is alive yeah. in London. And it's funny the way he tells... Patrick Bateman, because he doesn't start with that information. No. He starts by asking Patrick Bateman, because I think at this point, Patrick has said two different things that he was doing during that time. Well, he thought he was out with some woman for dinner or something like that. And then it's like, no, it couldn't be. That conflicts with what I have here. And so he keeps on, like, 
equivocating, you know, like, oh, maybe that was the next day or whatever. And But Kimball's like, I have confirmation that you were out with friends that night. Yeah. That you were there the whole time. Like, it's weird that you can't corroborate your own story. Right. You are acting so incredibly suspicious, but I know for a fact you didn't do it. <laughs> Not only do I know where you were that night, I know Paul Allen is alive. Yes. So, like, what the fuck is going on, man? <laughs> sort of like a, oh, smack the head. Oh, that's what happened. And then he's sort of, oh, yeah, smiling along with him. Like, you get it now? Like, it's, yeah, it's very interesting. And that is compounded by the, imagine, the three different faces. Imagine his one of his good friends just randomly killing him for no good reason. Isn't that ridiculous, Patrick? Right. When he says that, he already knows he didn't do it. Yes. Yeah, it's just really funny. <laughs> this is when he's going to kill those strippers. Uh, so, not strippers. Uh, the hooker that he got earlier that he beat, he's going to convince her to come with him again. And he's going to kill her this time with the chainsaw. Which, right there, like, the way that he does it is impossible. You know? Plus, he kills another woman who's high society that everyone would notice. No one hears her screams. No one complains about the chainsaw noise. Like, it's one thing to be like, oh, you know, like in a classic suburban horror movie, somebody turns off their their porch light when somebody's banging on their door screaming bloody murder. They just turn off their porch light, right? Halloween. But then on top of that, no one complains about the chainsaw noise. We're talking about the sort of sending up of yuppie culture and, you know, high society assholes wouldn't somebody complain about a chainsaw roaring in the hallways? No one comments about the mess that would have to be there at the bottom of the stairs. This is all just more evidence that this isn't really happening. Mm -hmm. And he's just doodling it in his planner. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he kills his friend, Elizabeth, and the sex worker he picks up on the street. Uh, this is when he has the whole Whitney Houston speech. Did you know that Whitney Houston's debut LP called simply Whitney Houston had four number one singles on it. Woo! It's hard to choose a favorite among so many great tracks. <laughs> but the greatest love of all is one of the best, most powerful songs ever written about self-preservation, dignity. This universal message crosses all boundaries and instills one with the hope it's not too late to better ourselves. Since <laughs> it's impossible in this world we live in to empathize with others, we can always empathize with ourselves. It's an important message. Crucial, really. It's beautifully stated on the album. There's also the line about why would you think that I'd be into that? And he's like, well, because you went to Sarah Lawrence, you know. The ironic thing, yes, I looked this up, this is true. So this is Guinevere Turner, one of the writers of the script, plays Elizabeth. And sure enough, she did go to Sarah Lawrence and she is a lesbian. <laughs> it's just sort of an ironic joke in the script there that she put there herself. Yeah, he ends up, they, they, they're they doing something, and the, the sex worker's trying to, like, get out of bed secretly and get out safely, because she remembers how it escalates after their first encounter of the night. 
it escalates and she didn't like that. So she's trying to get out and she notices when he's fooling around with Elizabeth that there's blood and then she starts screaming and then, yeah, he chases after her. She kicks him in the face and his primary concern is not the face. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then the the laughing maniacally dropping the the chainsaw. Completely impossible that that would work. But still, this is all in his head anyway, so of course it's impossible. Yes. He breaks it off with Evelyn. <laughs> ends the conversation by saying he has to return some videotapes. <laughs> Again, yeah, somewhere where he has to be. I have to return some videotapes. We uh, see that he has gone in completely insane because an ATM tells him to feed him a stray feed cat. Feed me a stray cat. And then, and then on top of that, he actually tries to do it. <laughs> and then suddenly, out of nowhere, he pulls a gun on the cat to get it to stop, like, struggling. Burning, yeah. Yeah. Where did the gun come from? When has he ever had a gun? Mm-hmm. And then immediately he gets fired upon by the cops He shoots a car and it blows up. He shoots a bunch of people. He shoots all these cops. Yeah. This this old lady. He's never getting shot. He's in the middle of the street. He never gets shot. He He, even wonders, like, when he blows up the car, he's like, what? He, like, looks at the gun, like, what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, and he goes up to his office and calls his lawyer and has this really great confession sort of monologue. It's so good, and it's so sad that you hear his his accent sometimes. Yes, his accent does, like, peek out during this. But he, he leaves it as a voicemail. And so the next morning, no consequences. Nobody's freaking out about the cops that were killed in the street or anything. He goes to clean up Paul Allen's apartment, which we saw just how horrific it was when the girl was running through the house trying to get away from him. He gets there, and there are potential tenants viewing the apartment, and it's all perfectly clean. Okay, Is he crazy and it was never dirty in the first place and he was never even using it in the first place? Or is this a commentary on the ruthlessness of New York real estate? No. That they would cover up murders just to sell an apartment? No, absolutely nothing happened. But I think you can look at it that way. But yeah, no, I don't think that that's the case. He runs into his lawyer at a bar and he's like, dude. And his lawyer's like, hilarious joke. Love it. But why would you pick Patrick Patrick Bateman? What a dork. Yeah. And Patrick's just like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? I am Patrick Bateman. You're my lawyer. It's funny. though. We we didn't mention he does call Jean Chloe Savigny and like freaking out. And that causes her to get suspicious. She looks through his planner and sees all the horrific stuff he did now i think that that's real and we never see the consequences for that because the movie ends consequence free but it's planted this seed of like now his secretary is like might be weirded out by him what are the consequences there i would that's not just quit but that's not in the book Mm. so i don't know if they wanted to be like let's add a little nut like a real life thing that he is actually crazy there's that great line, yes, Bryce, we were in fact listening to you. When Bryce is, is is talking about Reagan, he makes himself out to be a harmless old codger, but inside, inside, Patrick Bateman's voiceover is, but inside doesn't matter. Exactly. And that's that's the problem. And that's exactly what Patrick Bateman is saying. I've learned nothing. Yeah. I've gained uh-huh. no knowledge. Uh-huh. Nothing has been, there has been no character arc. Right. Craig, the guy from Sweet Home Alabama, (laughs) says, inside, yes, inside, believe it or not, Bryce, we were actually listening to you. (laughs) (laughs) 
I do. Yeah, I love his friends. <laughs> I love his friends because they're terrible. Well, specifically Justin Thoreau and the guy from Sweet Home Alabama. Like the two of them are smarter, and they yes. do know things more than Patrick Bateman gives him credit for. The other friend, I can't speak to. He only ever talks about... Uh, How much women suck. <laughs> no, he only ever talks about getting reservations and doing coke, which Bateman does yeah. comment on. He's like, do you have nothing else to ever add to the conversation? <laughs> and the guy from Sweet Home Alabama is like, whoa, dude. Yeah, like, Lucas. testy, testy, you know? <laughs> but, like, both... Him and Justin Throw are smarter, and it makes sense that Patrick Bateman would be friends with the smartest of the group. Uh -huh. Those would be the people, as he said earlier, Justin Throw is the most interesting person I know. Uh -huh. These of the people he deals with have the most to add. To offer, yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. And that also says something that these people have the most to offer. <laughs> yes. But I, I think that makes them really intriguing. Like, I wish I could find out more about those characters. Right. Follow up to that comment. Bryce, instead of saying what's on the inside of, of Reagan, asks Bateman what his opinion is. What do you think? And it's like, okay, that's interesting. Somebody actually cares about what Bateman thinks and, and that that person is Bryce. Of all people, of course it would be. And Bateman's response is, Whatever. Like, he's, like, completely nihilistic at this point. Fucking nothing matters. <laughs> and he gives his last little monologue. Mike, this confession has meant nothing one. There are no more barriers to cross. All I have in common with the uncontrollable and the insane, the vicious and the evil, all the mayhem I have caused and my utter indifference toward it, I have now surpassed. My pain is constant and sharp. And I do not hope for a better world for anyone. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. I want no one to escape. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. My punishment continues to elude me, and I gain no deeper knowledge of myself. No new knowledge can be extracted from my telling. This confession has meant nothing. And that's the end of the movie. Kelsey, what do you think American Psycho has on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm sure it's high, but not too high. I'm going to say 78. 69, dudes. Oh, okay. If it falls short of the deadly satire of Bret Easton Ellis's novel, American Psycho still finds its own blend of horror and humor, thanks in part to a fittingly creepy performance by Christian Bale. I think it's less violent than the novel. I don't hear any reports that it's less of a satire. It's far less violent, but its implications are just as violent. Right, right. I mean, this sort of reminds me of a Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange is more violent than this. Right. The movie is. Mm -hmm. But the book is sort of just as violent as Easton Ellis's book. You know, and they're both sort of critiques on the disaffected the youth of the time. And I can watch American Psycho over and over again. Yeah. I can't watch A Clockwork Orange over and over again. So what, do you difference. think it was a good choice that they sort of isolated the violence in the movie? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's genius. I think, and I, I think like this and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is interesting. We didn't even talk about the fact that that's playing in the background when he's yes. doing his crunches. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, but uh, I think both films excel in being so scary, 
so terrifying and yet watchable. That's the difference. Yeah. I don't enjoy watching someone get tortured. I don't enjoy watching right. someone get tearn up, torn apart. But I do enjoy being scared by the idea. Uh-huh. That's a scary thing. But I, I don't want to sit there and watch it. Why yeah. is that scary? It's not scary. It's just like, well, this sucks. Mm-hmm. This is just unbearable. Cool. Like, not a fun movie to watch. This is. Oh, we never talked about the Tom Cruise thing. <laughs> oh, I thought you did. <laughs> about how apparently, according to Christian Bale, he got the idea of how to play Patrick Bateman from, from watching Tom Cruise in an interview and about how there's nothing behind the eyes. Um, it's a big smile, nothing behind the eyes. And then Tom Cruise is in the book, apparently. He's, he lives in Patrick Bateman's building. <laughs> Metacritic of 64, cinema score of a D, which honestly, I'm not surprised. The movie doesn't give that great of a first impression. <laughs> I disagree. I saw this when I was a freshman or a sophomore. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I watched the deleted scenes immediately. I think I no. rewatched it immediately. Loved it. Yeah. See, I watched it in the context of like my dad and my brother, who were just really not into this stuff. And I was like, I thought it. W- I thought it was better than they thought it was. But I think that sort of muted my response to it. And I was like, it was okay. That was when my teacher was like, "Are you kidding? It was hilarious." And I was like, "Hilarious? <laughs> what do you mean?" <laughs> So, I also want to mention uh-huh. one of the coolest. Okay, Chris and I have been. I'm not trying to brag, and this is not like Hollywood level or anything, but we've been to a very cool Halloween party. There was yes. a oh, yeah. period of time to, yeah. where every year we were going to like movie level. Like, cool Like, party. what you see in movies. Like, yeah, what uh, a movie shows you a party should be. Uh-huh. Everyone is dressed up. The host would, like, give out party favors, and they would be like, hey, here's a trip and a hotel stay. And yeah, like, uh, yeah. It, that was how, that, that, like, that was the number one costume uh, contest thing. You know, horror movies playing, people dancing, um, drugs, alcohol. There's a whole spread, if you got there early enough, the kitchen Uh was a whole spread of food. Like, it was incredible. Like, everyone was dancing. Like, what a movie shows you a party should be like, Uh okay? At this party one time, I saw a dude dressed up as Patrick Bateman. In the raincoat. In the yeah, raincoat. Uh-huh. He had a, um, it's a very simple costume. He Just had a suit and a raincoat. Yeah. A suit, yeah, he had the, uh, the axe. But the quintessential thing. Oh, I, yes. Yes, I rem- I know what you're going to say. Okay, go ahead. I had to go up to him and I was like, dude, I love your costume. And without taking a beat, this dude takes out one of those uh, business cards. Business card clips like uh-huh, they have yeah. in the movie. Takes it out and hands me a, pi- a business card. And I was just like... <laughs> it's somewhere we lost it a long time I took ago. a picture, though. I have a picture yeah. of it, but it's so fucking cool. I was like, that was the dopest thing ever. <laughs> so, Kelsey. Yeah? Do you think that 69 is overrated or underrated, Prey? Oh, so underrated. Yes, but what would you give it? I'm going to give it a 90. Really? Okay. I was thinking I have to go at least 85. I'll give it an 87. High 80s. There is an excessive amount of violence towards women, so that... 
probably leads me down from getting an even higher score than to get. Yeah, the idea <laughs> that people walk away from this going, oh, this is misogynistic. Like, do you not know what satire is? Yeah, like, this movie is tearing down masculinity. Right. It is. It's making these people look like fucking doofuses. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand how you can walk away from that by saying that. I don't know. Oh, the other thing we didn't mention. Fuck, I, when I brought up uh, Tom Cruise, I was going to mention this. Uh, I didn't mention it when we talked about Leonardo DiCaprio. One thing I do want to say... When I immediately watched those deleted scenes, the one that stuck out the most, and it's because it's Justin Thoreau, there's a scene where they're at the bar, and Justin Thoreau, I thought, based on the deleted scene, and it is dark, it is hard to see, I thought he flew off the banister. I thought they right, took that that's out. that's not in the extended version. It's not. Yeah. It's just a deleted scene. I thought that that they took that out because it, you know, so obviously proved that he was ins- insane and they wanted to keep it more questionable than that. Uh-huh. Uh, but then I learned that, no, apparently that was originally part of the real story. And, like, in the film, the guy from Sweet Home Alabama says about Justin Thoreau, hey, look, he's back. Hey, look, Bryce is back, and he's drinking mineral water. Yeah. He's a changed man. Except we still can't get a reservation to save his life. Because in the deleted scene, he says, I've got to get out of here. Listen, Patrick. Listen to me. I'm leaving. Where to? You're going to go get a gram? You dumb son of a bitch. I'm disappearing. Where to? Morgan Stanley rehab? What? Goodbye! Fuck and he runs away. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you don't see him again until the end. Yeah. And I think that that also, again, it puts so much intrigue in this Justin Thoreau character. What is going on in his mind that he needs to get away? Like, is he aware of his insanity? Like, is he aware of everything just as much as Patrick Bateman is? Is everyone just as aware as Patrick mm-hmm. Bateman is? And is that one of Patrick Bateman's biggest flaws? That he doesn't understand that he's not the only person. Is he truly just a self-centered tween boy? Yeah. Does everyone around him just deal with it? Even though it fucking sucks. (laughs) I also didn't mention, kind of laid the seed there when I talked about Leonardo DiCaprio. So Leonardo DiCaprio was campaigned towards by lots of people not to be in the movie. I don't know if that's why he decided to do the beach instead. Uh, But one of the people that tried to convince him not to do it was feminist author and journalist Gloria Steinem. Now, she hated the book. I could kind of see an argument about misogyny in the book. And I'll tell you why. We talk about the big difference between the book and the movie is just the level of actual violence. The book sort of revels in the details of the violence. It's harder to make an argument that it's not propping up violence against women as entertainment when you dedicate so much time in your book to the specific details of harming women. It's harder to make a satire argument that way. Right. My argument to that would be two things. 
One, if he was a real person, he would revel in it. Yeah, that's what he would be thinking about. Like, that, if he was the real character that right. he's presenting him to be, that would be how he would feel and see it. Right. And secondly, aren't we supposed to be disgusted with it? Yes, but what if you're not? But that's every torture porn movie. Right. No, no, no. I, I, I definitely see. Like, I would make the argument that no, she's wrong. But I could see how she gets to that argument. I don't think she's completely off base. It is telling that when the movie is taken over by a woman director and women scriptwriters, that is the element that's completely excised. And we're left with none of the fat, just the lean of the actual satire, you know. And so it's a lot easier to make the argument that, no, this isn't misogynistic by taking that stuff out, you know. But anyway, my point is, is that Gloria Steinem uh, became Christian Bale's stepmom the year this movie came out in 2000, married his dad. This is really funny. Uh, he has since come out and said that, no, it was not like a jab at her or anything like that. It had nothing to do with that. He was already signed on to do the movie before Leo was. So, but it's just interesting that the one person who most notably campaigned against men being in this movie is the stepmom to the guy who ended up being in the movie. <laughs> But they've done stuff together since. Like, they are they have a fine relationship. His dad died, like, three years later. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's a bummer. Anyway, that is American Psycho. <laughs> we talked for so long. Remember when we were like, we can't go into every detail. It would take so long. We can't talk about every theory or whatever because it would take so long. And we didn't. We left a lot of stuff out that we did not talk about. By all means, please... In the comments on the website or on our Discord or on Twitter, share your thoughts of the movie, too. Talk about the things that we didn't end up talking about. But we ended up talking for a good hour and a half about this movie. Who knows what it'll be in the edit. All right. Moving on to our modern film in this episode, our 500th movie <laughs> that we've covered on this show. Five. 2015's Green Room, written and directed by Jeremy Saulnier. I don't know if that's how you actually pronounce it. He's the guy who did Blue Ruin. Starring Anton Yelchin, Imogen Poots, and Alia Shotcat, Patrick Stewart, and Macon Blair, uh, who is the guy from Blue Ruin. This is Anton Yelchin's last movie. So sad. Before he died. At least it's the last one that was released in theaters. And this is dedicated to him as well. Kelsey, what is Green Room about? A punk band uh, is doing a show at a skinhead club. They accidentally walk in on a murder. And the people who work there freak out. And they lock them up in their green room. And it is about their fight for survival. The movie is available with a subscription to Showtime, Canopy, and DirecTV. You can rent it for 3 to $6. It's cheapest on Redbox. And you can buy it for 15 but only 13 on DirecTV. 
Kelsey, should people watch Green Room? Yes. Yes. I think it's very good. Very good. It is not necessarily a happy movie. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of fucking skinhead neo-Nazis in it. There's a whole song dedicated to fuck off Right. Skinheads. No, it's obviously not celebratory of them, but it does manage to, like, it does manage to intrigue you with the sort of inner workings of, like, the skinhead movement. Well, yeah. Like, the accounting, the legal aspects... Like, how they stay afloat as, a, as an organization in the modern day and how they operate. It's very, very compelling stuff on the level of, of American History X. But obviously, this is a completely different type of movie than American History X. But yeah, people should watch it. Yes. Why do you think? I think the actors are great. Anton Yelkin, I always thought he was such a good actor. Uh, Shawcat does a great job. Um of course. Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart is amazing. And you don't normally think of him in villain roles. As a villain. Uh, and Unless it's Shakespeare. You know, it's not as exciting the, the second time you see it. The first time I saw it, like, what's going to happen? Who's going to do what? What's going to do? Like, happen uh-huh. next? Like, I was on the edge of my seat. Not so much the second time. But, I mean, that's expected. Yeah. But I thought it was good. I think I it's was, very good. You should at least see it once. I was pleasantly surprised when we saw it for the first time, especially since Blue Ruin kind of washed over us. Like, I... Didn't like I it. remember hardly anything about it. Like, I know people that really like the movie, and I watched it, and I'm like, meh. It's about this guy on a mission for revenge. I barely remember. I just Macon know I Blair, the guy who is the nerd Nazi in this, you know? Anyway... You can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about our 500th film, 2015's Green Room. Sound check in 15. You're on in 20. There's been a stabbing. Stop. In the room. Go. Cops are on the way. We sit and we wait. And we die. Not if you sit and you wait. Where are the police? They've come and gone. Got a little complicated. Gentlemen. It won't end well. Holy shit. Things have gone south. No doubt. We gotta go. Shoot who's left. Love and bleed. You're coming. Here we go. Careful now. This will be over soon, gentlemen. All right, Kelsey, get us started. What do you want to talk about with Green Room? So let's get it right off the bat. Uh, this punk band is not exactly like. They're not sweet kids. No. They're running around. They're siphoning gas. They don't care if they, you know, hurt other people's crops because they fall asleep at the wheel. Mm-hmm. Like, that Punk stuff. rock, man. Yes. They're really annoying and they're like, we're not into being, like, famous. Like, they... Right. It's, it's really lame. <laughs> you gotta come to our shows because, you know... Uh, we don't want to go digital because it takes away all the texture. Right. 
it 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 exists and then it doesn't exist and that's just how it is man like so that whole thing i like that they don't try to make these kids saccharin or like people right. that you just innocent fun loving people right like these are grungy kids that you might not like and then they're put against the backdrop of skinheads and you're like oh yeah uh i really like the punk band now (laughs) you know they're called the ain't rights or at one point they refer to themselves aka the aren't rights which is a reference to the fact that they're not right-wing skinheads yes exactly they're on their way to a show and they work at a, a at like this Mexican diner, and it's yeah. really embarrassing. And they get barely any money from it. And they get super pissed off at the guy that booked them. Uh, he's all he was also the guy who interviewed them for this radio show that he no longer works at. Right. Well, no, he works at the radio show. He he lost his license to to operate shows out of venues. Mm. So that's why. Like, for the previous day or something like that. So that's why he had to find them another location um, because he can't work out of that specific location. And it's this fucking restaurant. And he, to his credit, he's there. He shows up. Like, he also goes through the same thing they do. But they are fucking pissed off. And they're like, well, that's the end of the tour, I guess. We don't have enough money even to get home, let alone to the next uh, venue. But he tells them about another show they can go to, but it is going to be all skinheads. And he's like, just do the show and then get out of there. You'll be fine. Right. Just don't say anything about politics. Do your older stuff. Yes, uh, the heavier (laughs) stuff. And they're, you know, they knowledgeably, like, ask questions about, like, what are we talking about skinheads? Like, what kind of skinheads are we talking about here? You know, and he tries to, so, uh, uh, uh. Just so you know, it's mostly boots and braces down there. Skins is some of every shop. What, DMS, Sharp? Uh, right wing, or technically ultra left, but not affiliated. Uh, are your cousins cool? Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't talk politics, but stick with Daniel. I tag along, but he and his girl are coming here to crash. Got a vacuum and shit. So, they're not, like, burning crosses. Or anything, right? Like, we just play rock? Uh, I'd play earlier stuff. Heavier stuff. Anton Yelkin being the punk kid that he is, mm-hmm. when they get there, he's like, I have a really stupid idea. Let's do the Nazi punks Nazi fuck punks off, fuck off. Yeah. song by the Dead Kennedys. Yeah. But when they get out there, he starts to get a little cold feet, and he's like, maybe we shouldn't do this. And Shockhead goes, you back out now, I'll tell them you're Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a funny thing to laugh about. Yes. <laughs> you know where we stand on this issue, guys. Okay. We're not. This was your fucking idea. You back out now, I tell him you're Jewish. Go. Even ladies and gentlemen, we are the ain't rights or the aren't rights. Either one. Don't take that! Fuck ain't no religious code. Fuck me, thank you for yourself. The ain't hard code. This is Mikey here, but a jack still lives inside your head. Nazi punks, Nazi punks, Nazi punks. But so they finish their set and like, yes, some people leave in anger, but then immediately after that they play their normal music 
and the people stay and they give them props for being a good band. Yes. And they're like, cool, we got paid more than we were expecting. We're all good. We're ready to go. And they come out and they're surprised because all their stuff is in the middle of the walkway. And they're like, that's weird. We were told that, like, the guy was against fire hazard stuff. And they're like, yeah, so sorry. We just really need to get you guys out of here. With The, the next other band, band is coming here. in is here, yeah. Uh-huh. And they're like, no big deal. And Shawcat's like, oh, no, I left my phone in the green room. And yeah. Yelkin's like, don't worry, girl, I got you. And he walks in. And he sees a woman on the ground, knife in her hand head and Imogen Poots is in there meekly asks him to call the cops and he's like oh shit and then <laughs> yeah so fuck yes so they call the cops to make it look good for this band that is now here that they have now shut into this green room you guys can't leave uh we're gonna call the cops and yeah you gotta stay here well he first called the cops and they stopped him from from making a report or whatever. Like, he dials 911. Oh. Yeah, and now they're like, well, shit, now we gotta call the cops back. This is Macon Blair, who's sort of just the nerd running the operation of the place while the the two people at the head, Patrick Stewart's uh, Darcy and Kai Lennox's Clark, are, like, the two bigwigs in this organization, but obviously Darcy runs this place. Macon Blair's Gabe is, like, Damage control, damage control. Like, okay, I got to call the cops. We need to find out some sort of thing that somebody could have called the cops over. They end up recruiting. Somebody asks him, like, what can I do for you? What do you need? And he says, how about a true believer? Two, and, in fact. And, yeah, and one guy said, what about two? And it's twins. And they're willing, one, to stab the other. It's like, what? Well, we've done it before, you know, in order to pose as that's the incident that the cops were called for and, you know, you'll get paid. And if you end up spending any time in prison, we'll double it. Okay, great. So that's their explanation as to why the cops are there. But then the cops leave. This whole entire time trapped in the green room, our band doesn't know they've even shown up yet, let alone left. They're trying to negotiate how is it that we can get out to see the cops Like, we're not leaving until the cops get here. When Darcy shows up, he's like, I'm sorry, but they've already left. There's this whole thing. The band ends up getting the gun away from the guy who's capturing them because Uh, they tell tell him to give it to them because they want them to feel safe so that they'll come out and then they'll kill them. Mm -hmm. But Yelkin is smarter than that. And also Imogen Poots is looking through the... uh, the vent. The There's vent, like a vent in the floor, yeah. Way too late, by the way. Like, right. she takes her sweet time looking around. She but- sees Patrick Stewart back up when Anton tells him to back up. Pat is the character's name. She's like, okay, yeah, it's good. And then as he's about to open the door, she just sort of moves her head to look to the side and sees a bunch more shoes. Yes. She's like, oh, stop, they're going to kill us, they're going to kill us. And they grab Pat's arm that has the gun to try to take the gun from him and just start fucking hacking at it when he pulls it back in and you see what happened it's like i don't i don't like bones not where they're supposed to be bones bones need to go where they need to go they do not need to move break or bend for those of you that don't know kelsey dislocated her knee a while ago just uh like a week and a half ago or so uh like really really badly (laughs) 
And so now she has this like aversion to <laughs> bones not it's being in the over, right place. It's been over two weeks. Oh, Jesus. Wow. Yeah. So things have escalated. The violence has been triggered. And actual violence, not just the threat of violence as violence. Well, yeah. I mean, we've already seen the guy who stabbed the girl, like, grab the knife and, like, pull it out of the head. Oh, yeah. When he does that, they're like, "What? maybe she's not dead. There's not even any blood. And the dude just, he's, like, the lead singer or whatever of the of the band who was going to be coming up no, next. He's the one who killed yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. His name is Worm. He grabs the knife and just drags it or her around by the head, by the handle of this knife, and then ends up yanking it out. And he's, oh, there it is. And all the blood starts pouring out. Like, he's just terrible. He asks Pat at one point, what was that song you played, the second to last song? And Pat answers, and he's like, that was that song was hard. Your set was pretty good. What was the name of your second to last song? Toxic evolution. It's fucking hard, man. That's the one I did her to. Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) But meanwhile, Darcy, who's shown up, Patrick Stewart, is just like damage control as well. Just like Macon Blair was. And he actually is like, you know, yeah, there are some fuck up things here. But like you did a really good job tonight. Later on. He's going to, once they think they've handled everything, he's going to give Macon Blair his red shoelaces. For those of you that don't know, it basically means you've killed somebody for the movement. Then you get your red shoelaces. Yeah. At one point, Darcy pretends that there's like a blackout and like has everybody leave except for people with red laces because those are, as they call Those are the committed ones. Those are the true believers, the ones that uh will do anything for the movement. And as Darcy puts it, it's a movement, not a party. Right. Yes. And so he starts also doing damage control. Right. And it's things like, okay, we need to use your dogs from Clark, that second in command. The guy who's like the accountant and shit. He also trains like dog fighting dogs. Yes. Just fucked. And he uses German words for Uh training. Well, the reason they do that is... Cops do that, too, which I don't know. Does that tell you? No, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) They're things like they're German shepherds. Usually when they're cop dogs, you want to give them commands that people aren't going to say. Like if somebody's getting attacked and they go, stop, stop, stop. You don't want your dog to stop. You know, you want them. You want them to not get accidental commands. So you do it in another language that's not commonly spoken. And they're German shepherds. You speak German. You don't have to. It's just a fun little like, thing. I feel like it's a... Yeah. I feel like it's not a good yeah. look. It's a little Nazi, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> not sorry, to say, Sorry, all of our German friends out Germans there. Not Germans are yeah. Nazis. I just... You know. Hey, I am German. I'm yeah. very German. <laughs> so am I. Just so you guys know. <laughs> My last name is very German. <laughs> Let's not skip over Imogen Poots' response when you know the whole thing happens and he has his arm broken which looks really real oh my god yeah uh-huh. i'm sure it was just rubber but it looked so real uh-huh. when that's happening imogen poots's response because like the uh, the lead singer of the band has the guy in a chokehold which by the way he looks a lot like hopper oh yes yeah i mean you guys have seen him before eric edelstein 
he's basically like a larger version of Hopper. Like he's taller, <laughs> he's fatter, but he looks like it's a lot like Hopper. Yeah. I was like, holy shit, <laughs> is that Hopper? Before he was no. famous, no, no, no. Uh, but, but you've anyway. definitely seen him before. He's a character actor. Uh, so the lead singer has this guy in a chokehold, and remember, he's the one who was keeping them captive. Not the lead singer. He's the drummer. Is that drummer? Yeah, Spider is the lead singer. Whatever. Um, the drummer is, is the other Reese. two are interchangeable. Yeah, so Pat gets his arm, his hand almost chopped off. Several chop marks. Reese has him in an arm bar. And intentionally, when this happens, intentionally breaks his elbow. Yes. So this is the kind of shit that Kelsey can't see. Yes, no, it was terrible. But then later his arm is fine. Well, because he doesn't break a bone. He dislocates his elbow. So theoretically, you could pop it back in. You'd be in a lot of pain, but he's hardcore, you know. Jesus Christ. But anyway, (laughs) it don't matter. Because Imogen Poots is going to gut him. Yeah, there's a moment where he's choking him out. It looks so real. Waiting for him to pass out, and then he does, and they're like, okay. They He starts to let go, and then he wakes up again. So Reese grabs him in another chokehold, and he starts to pass out again, and, and Shawcat's like, how do we know when he's actually out? <laughs> and that's when Imogen Poots takes the box cutter that he had on him, tried to fool them into thinking he didn't have, uh, her name's Amber, by the way, in this. Sam is Aaliyah Shotcat. Shotcat. And she just fucking slices up the center of his gut. It looks very real. It's very, very real. It's uh, visceral. They do a really, really good job on the violence that you actually see. And you see more violence in this movie than you do in American Psycho. And other than the popping of the <laughs> elbow, I think that Yelkin's response, like, is very real. Like... I feel like a lot of movies would make it like, ah, it hurts, but I'm okay. But, like, he's, like, going white. Yes. Uh, he, he is... He can't use that arm for the rest of the movie. He can't think straight. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. I thought this is, like, this is a really good representation of what this kind mm-hmm. of pain would be like. While they're trapped... Oh, she- Amber does a really cool thing, actually, Imogen Poots, earlier in this, when they can't trust Big Justin, uh, and they turn all the lights out. She takes their lighter, lights a cigarette, and then gives it to Big Justin. And he's like, yeah, sure. She's like, smoke this. He's like, deal. And then she turns to the rest of the group and says, If the cherry does something that you don't like, shoot. Shoot Shoot him. him. (laughs) That's that's actually kind of cool. Yes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so the whole point, the whole reason this is a huge deal, the underlying conspiracy is that the skinheads are making heroin in a lab underneath the green room. That's why they're so careful with the cops. And why, the, yeah, the cops can't come. It's really bad that this dude killed somebody. They end up planting some of this with a, with a black gang's stamp on the package to the group. That's what I'm saying. I think, it's, I think they're the band Worm and his friends and send them home. And so it's basically like if anything happens, they're going to get caught with some other gang's, quote unquote, heroin on them. Uh, and it also would implicate this black gang, which they don't like. Right. So he's like trying to cover as many Darcy is trying to cover as many of his bases as he possibly can. But they end up finding entry into this lab. Spider will the lead singer. He'll find some fucking duct tape and just start wrapping his arm like 
Put a shirt around it, my <sighs> dude. Don't put the tape directly on the skin, directly on the cuts. Yeah. Like, wrap up one layer of a shirt. Because obviously, <sighs> the thicker you wrap it, the less effective the tape is going to be in keeping it in place. <sighs> so just, like, one layer, something, anything between the tape and his arm. <sighs> like, ah, ah, ah. But it allows them to just put his arm in tape, and then they can use that for the rest of the movie instead of having the chop effect going on. They're going to try to run out there because they have the gun. And they do their Desert Island band. Basically, you can pick one band to have their music on a desert island. This was a conversation they had during the interview earlier. And they all said really hard names that I didn't know except for the Misfits. Yeah. And Pat couldn't think of anything. And he doesn't. He doesn't give an answer to that question. Again, it's like, hey, we might die what are our real choices? We're not just acting hard here. Right. What are our real choices? Sam says Simon and Garfunkel. Reese says Prince. And he's like the hardest of them. He's not performative like Spider is. Like, he's the one who breaks that dude's elbow. Like, he's quiet and hard fucking core, right? He's that guy. He's Jason Siegel in SLC Punk. Uh, so. But the other guy says. Yeah, he chooses misfits. Prince. Yeah, Tiger is his name, not Spider. It's Tiger. I apologize. I kept saying Spider. Tiger says, still the misfits. Pat, again, says, I don't know. And Amber, who wasn't wasn't there, she's one of the skinheads, says Madonna and Slayer. Like, you know, her real one and her other one. So she gets two answers, too. And it's sort of at this moment, she's now part of the group. Right? Like... It's a weird sort of relationship they have. They don't trust her at all. And as the movie goes on, they start to trust her more and more. At one point, Yelkin asks her, how on earth could you fall for this shit? And she's like, let's just say the people who hurt me weren't white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Not saying that... Right. No, that's not an appropriate <laughs> fucking response. But it's like, at, we, we learn more about her. The movie right. wants you to at least see how this might happen to somebody. People are rarely just evil for no reason. Right, exactly. We do find out more about the conspiracy that was going on with Dan. So Tad, the guy who did the interview at the beginning, said my cousin and his girlfriend are with this organization. They'll be there. His cousin is Daniel. He was going to be at the door. And there's this great moment where like he gives Tiger shit. For mentioning him and his girlfriend and Tad. And he's like, don't fucking breathe a word about that. And he seems really on edge. And you're like, what's this all about? Like, what's going on? So later, when we find out that the girl who died is Dan's girlfriend, Macon Blair takes Daniel off the front door. Later on, Darcy's going to ask, yeah, you mentioned you took him off the door. What's that all about? Well, he was worried because the girl who died was Daniel's girlfriend and she was killed because she was going to leave. And so they search Daniel's car and they find a bat that was used to kill somebody and could implicate the entire organization. Yeah, wrapped in plastic. It meant they were going to get out and they were going to take evidence with them and potentially implicate the entire organization. Yeah, who knows if they were taking that as... like insurance. Yeah, as insurance, uh or if they were planning on going to the cops, who knows. But now the situation has changed. Although, it doesn't really... They were going to kill these people no matter what. I guess now they just know that they can't trust Daniel. Right. I forget why, but... Daniel finds out that they killed 
his girlfriend. And of course, Darcy lies and says, oh, it was the band that did it. Uh-huh. Thinking that if he does that, well, then great. He'll go in and he'll just kill the kids, the people from the band without thinking. Yeah. Why doesn't he consider the fact that Poots could and does tell him exactly what happened? It's such a stupid plan. Well, I mean, I don't think he knows much about Poots in there right now. But also, he doesn't know that Daniel is defecting at this point. He hasn't found the bat yet? He hasn't found the bat yet. He sends him in. And then, yeah, he sends him in. And then he's like, what's taking so long? And he asks him, why did you take him off the door again? And then they check the car. And then he's like, oh, fuck. So he sends people in with guns to take care of the situation. And they end up shooting Dan in the head with a shotgun. That's really fucking violent. Yeah, we also get some violent scenes. The other two band members, the two guys, they get killed by the dog. No, okay, so Reese gets just beaten the shit out of as he tries to, the dogs come in. Sam gets her throat torn out by the dog. Reese tries to climb out and he just gets the shit beat out of him. I think Tiger gets killed by a dog inside. Mm -hmm. So Tiger's like the first one that dies inside. Sam dies outside, that's Shawcat, and Reese gets beaten to death. Uh, so, yeah, it's literally just Pat, Anton Yelkin, Yelchin, and Imogen Poots is Amber. They're the only ones left. So, when it comes down to those two, for some reason, Darcy thinks that it's no big deal. So, he, like, gets everybody to leave. Well, they only need three for- bodies. That's what he says. Three will do. The fourth one you can do whatever with. Because they can kill them, shoot them in the fucking head. This entire time, they've been using kid gloves because they need to explain the dead bodies. And how they're going to explain that when they find all the siphoning material in their van is they're going to take the van to the compound where Clark trains the dogs and has a beware of dog sign. So basically, they can explain it away. They were on the property. They were trying to steal a gas from our cars and the dogs attacked them. Like the castle doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so they have a way to explain the dead bodies. They only need three bodies, he says. So fuck the fourth one. Fuck the girl. Just go in there with guns and, and clean things up. But they underestimate the resourcefulness of Amber and Pat who end up tricking the guys who come in with the guns. Meanwhile, Macon Blair's, like, he has an apron on and he's cleaning up everything in the club. They end up tricking them. She slices the throat of one guy. She does it again to the second guy with the gun, right? Yelkin, she get he gets the drop on her and Yelkin ends up killing him with a machete. Uh, Was that what happened? I think they're outside when that happens. I think they're going to Darcy. So they're out and free, and they, well, they catch Macon Blair, and he's obviously the one, as level-headed as he's been, he's also like, well, this is fucked, everything's over, this is catastrophic. They're like, here's what you do. You go to the cops, you explain everything that happened here, and you'll probably get off a lot lighter by having not actually done anything. Agreed? Agreed, right? And they just send him off through the woods, and he ends up finding, interesting, not white people. (laughs) (laughs) That he has to explain what happened to. They come across Blair and Clark and some other skinhead there, and they kill Clark, and they have Darcy and some other skinhead. I don't think we ever got his name. They have them at gunpoint now, and they're potentially going to shoot them. And Darcy knows this. So he just turns around, walks the other way, 
pulls out a gun and gets shot before he can fire it. He starts to fall and then he fires and completely misses them. So they kill both of them. And now it's just the two of them and they are all that's left. The dog comes. You think it's going to be a problem? They, they get Oh, they guns. have their guns up? Yeah. Uh-huh. The dog just goes to just his Just lays down with dog. Clark and just like, they thought he was going to die too. The, the dog, that is. And yeah, he just lays down with his dead owner and doesn't do anything. And so he asks Amber, do you want to know? He, no, he says, I think I've just figured out what my band would be. His Desert Island band. And she's like, something like, who gives a fuck? What does Tell she say? Tell it to somebody who gives a shit. And yeah. I was like, I give a shit. I felt the same way both times. I saw but, well, movie. yeah, but you're a you're a viewer. You're not a participant. She's like, I. what the fuck are you talking about? Who gives a shit? We just went through all that. But they do immediately play a Creedence Clearwater Revival song. So yeah. you can assume that that's his band. Right. Apparently, Anton and... Writer-director Jeremy Saulnier, uh, who, by the way, writer-director, did a great job. Yes. Did a great job. Very good. We've been told we need to be pointing this out more often because it does happen. And I'm always, always pointing out when people try to write and direct their own indie shit. And he did Blue Ruin, and he was like, I have to do something else right away. He was going to get offers, and he's like, I'm never going to get another opportunity to take the clout from Blue Ruin and make whatever I want. And so he made Green Room as a result. Green Room is so much better than Blue Ruin. Yeah. Well, he was like, you know, I'll never be able to make a movie like Green – this violent, full of Nazis and shit like that uh, if I become, like, you know, a big shot in the industry. Oh, there's this great line we didn't mention that Pat says. It's funny because it's, like, daytime now. It's funny. It's funny. You were so scary at night. Both movies, you know, very different looks at how society can change a person. American Psycho is about a man who is molded into believing that nothing matters. All that matters is wealth Uh and things. Status and appearance. Yeah, yeah, and appearance. And so he just becomes this vapid person who just hates. Nothing but appearance is what he is, yeah. Right. And his hatred is all put on women. Uh, We're never explicitly told why. Well, women and the poor and gay right. people. He people mentions that, he mentions he kills a gay person in people his People don't, don't fit confession. the mold. Yes. Uh-huh. That aren't doing what he's doing. That aren't conforming. Yes. Yeah. Whereas this is – we don't get anywhere near as intense of a look into uh, Darcy's point of view – yeah. But we do get to see these people and how this hatred that they have towards people who are a different color than them. And they use that as a shield to, you know, be bad people and make heroin and kill people that don't do what they want to, them to do. You know, like that kind of thing. Just that people that don't fit the mold. And there's this idea of what an American person should be right up if you're intrigued at all by patrick stewart's darcy watch american history x it's very similar to stacy keach's character uh, of just like the older man who's actually running the skinhead organization you know yes very very interesting yeah and uh absolutely i thought that the acting in this was stellar i think it's a very simple movie it's you know they're in one place the entire film. Yeah. 
Very, very simple. They walk a ways away afterwards, but that's it. Yeah. Uh, But I think it's really, really good. Acting is spot on. Writing is really good. And it is, the fir- especially the first time, it's very intense. So what do you think its Rotten Tomato score is? I guess it's like a 79. 90. Ooh. Green Room delivers unapologetic genre thrills with uncommon intelligence and powerfully acted along. <laughs> yes. Uh, Metacritic of 79, no cinema score. Do you think this movie is overrated or underrated? It's exactly what I would give it. You would it also give this one a 90? Yes. I don't think I could give this one a higher, as high a score as uh, uh, American Psycho. I think that they're both very different films, but I think they both accomplish exactly what they were trying to I do. I feel like this one is maybe a little bit... It's smaller. It's a smaller Sloppier, film. I would say. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't think so. I, I mean, but not by much. It's not going to affect my score by much. I, I think I'll just give it a straight 85. Middle of the road 80s. Great movie. Really good. good. This is one of the good ones. And I'm glad we did it for our 500th movie. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot of movies. With that in mind, Kelsey, it's October now. What are we watching next week? Well, next week, we've got a new Hellraiser movie coming out. Yeah. So we thought... It's a reboot. It's not a sequel, but, you know. At least as far as we can tell. Yeah, and we've seen the first two and we've seen the sixth. Yeah. Because that's kind of a trilogy. Although we didn't do it on purpose. No. Um, But, so we'll go ahead and do Hellraiser 3, which is Hell on Earth. Hooray. By the way. Is this the one that takes place in the nightclub? I think it is. Hold on. If I remember correctly... The one that takes place in the nightclub is silly. <laughs> yeah, and then f- is Four Bloodline the one with Adam Scott in it? Oh, God, where they go back to, like, the 1700s. Yeah. An investigative reporter must send the newly unbound Pinhead and his legions back to hell. She it's She's like an art dealer, but she, like, lives above a nightclub or something. Yeah, and the dude has that column just, like, hanging. Yes, because it's art. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, it's been way too long. Yeah, and Hellraiser 4 is Bloodline. I think that's as far as we got, ever. And that is the one with Adam Scott, yes. Uh Uh-huh. But anyway, I don't think we ever got past that when we originally watched it. I think you're right. So we're going to watch Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, and... The new Hellraiser, Hellraiser? just called Hellraiser 2022. Mm -hmm. 2022. That's going to be on uh, Hulu uh, this week, just a couple days after this episode comes out. Yes. So we'll be doing a quick turnaround on this one. Mm Mm-hmm. That is next week. Until then, you can always find us on our website, podcemetery.com on Twitter at podcemetery and on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcemetery where we upload uh, extra content uh, you can get a link to our discord as well we're on there don't forget to subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice and rate and review a five star written review is the biggest help you can give us there but even bigger than that sharing us with your friends and even bigger than that is listening in the GD first place thank you all very very much We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. But before we go, Kelsey, any last words? I guess I'm a pretty sick guy. Unless you think!
You ready for quiet time? Okay. Quiet time starts now. You fucking cat. Hey, come on up here. Tip to B square. I think Huey Lewis sounds too black for me. <laughs> Which is funny because he obviously doesn't believe that. He loves him. Yeah, he just doesn't want to be associated with the music that was playing while he killed Paul uh, Allen. And though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I am simply not there. Do you like Phil Collins? <laughs> Do you like gladiator movies? <laughs> Do you like Huey Lewis in the news? <laughs> I've got to return some videotapes. Impre this is a rare week where you graded both movies higher than I did. Da-na-na-na. 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 Da-na-na-na.